Please be seated. I have um, have a, a prop this morning, a visual aid. Uh, show and tell, they used to call it when I was in school. Um, this is a very fragile copy of the Book of Common Prayer. Of course, it's in microprint because you would want to take it with you everywhere. You would want to have it always in your vest pocket or, or in your purse or uh, about your person in some way. This particular edition of the Book of Common Prayer is the American 1807 uh, edition. There have been numerous revisions of the prayer book since then. It's still recognizably the same book. If you get out the 1662 classic Book of Common Prayer, which is in use, to, use in most of the Anglican Communion, and you compare it to, uh, let's say, the 1979 prayer book, particularly, particularly Rite 1, you can tell it's the same book. But inevitably, things are left out and things are added in. For instance, in our book, which is 79 that we have in the cathedral chairs, uh, there was included in that revision um, two forms for making a private confession. Now, private confession has always been uh, part of the Anglican way. It dropped out of some of the Reformation churches, but it was kept in quite intentionally uh, by Cranmer in the English Reformation. And there's an old motto about this, none must, all may, some should. And here in our prayer book are two forms for that very thing. And the priests always could hear confessions, but they would have to kind of scrounge about for some forms. There they are right there. So things were included, but other things were left out. One of the things that was left out that was in the 1807 book that was left out in subsequent, subsequent revisions is a very beautiful liturgy for a priest to use when visiting prisoners. Now, I've, I've, I've had occasion to do that in every parish for, for 40, almost 40 years. In every parish that I've served, I've had occasion to have to go to the jail to visit somebody that was under my care, a part of my pastoral charge. And I would have done here at the cathedral, but I was prevented from doing so by the COVID, um, COVID rules. Good thing to have. Now, part of this liturgy is a very moving section. And I'm going to try to read a little bit of it to you. Uh, it's very fine print, and it's, the light is not the best here in the cathedral. I'm going to bring out a flashlight, so bear with me. Uh, it's a liturgy for the priest to use with a person under sentence of death. And the, 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 the theme of this section is, do not despair of God's mercy, nor presume upon his goodness. Do not despair of God's mercy, mercy, nor presume upon his goodness. Now, Jesus is telling one of these stories again today in the gospel reading. These are the stories that got him killed, for they perceived that he was telling these stories against them. And in these stories, he's always asking, answering a question. And the question is, what is the kingdom of heaven like? So he tells this story that he does today about the kingdom of heaven is like a king who had a son, the son's getting married, and there's a wedding feast. More about that in, in a moment. But we could, we could summarize this parable. We could say, what's the big message of this parable? Do not despair of the mercy of God. Do not presume upon his goodness. And so I just want to read you a little bit here, if I can, 
of, this is what the priest is to say to the person condemned to death. This is from prayers for persons under sentence of death. Be not deceived with the vain and presumptuous expectation of God's favor, nor say within yourself, peace, peace, where there is no peace. For there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. God is not mocked. He is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. And without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. On the other hand, despair not of God's mercy, though trouble is on every side. For God shutteth not up his mercies forever in displeasure. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do not either way abuse the goodness of God who calleth us mercifully to amendment and of his endless pity promiseth us forgiveness of that which is past if with a perfect and true heart we return to him. Um, real, real uh, prayer book, um, real prayer book prose in every, in every way. Um, heartrending, I think. Um, so what is this parable about? Well, these are the stories that get Jesus killed. So he's telling this story, and Jesus is criticized. And uh, um, there, there are a couple of criticisms um, about him, but one of the criticisms that is repeated over and over again is that he eats and drinks with sinners. So he's defending himself and he's explaining the nature of the kingdom of God. Now, when you're a second temple Jew and you hear a rabbi telling a story about a king who has a son and is giving a wedding feast, it's pretty clear we're now talking about the Messiah. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament reading that we have this morning is talking to the people of Israel when they are exiles in Babylon. You know, when we conquered the American Indians, we exiled them to Oklahoma, right? This is what conquerors do. They, they, they relocate people so that they can be pacified. And God has removed his protection from the people of Israel who are his chosen people. He has allowed the heathen nations who are idolaters and worship false gods. Nevertheless, God has raised them up as a hammer to hammer Israel. He's allowed Israel to be conquered, to be defeated, to be humiliated, and to be taken into exile. And their, their prayer is, how long, O Lord, will your, will your wrath and your anger be against us? And the prophet, God says to the prophet Isaiah, speak comfortably to my people, tell them that the days of their exile is over and that they're going to return. And they do return. And if you read in the Bible, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, that's about the return. And all the promises that God is making, they come true. But there must be more. And the more comes in fullness with Jesus Christ. 
So first of all, when he tells this story about a king who has a son, immediately people are saying he's claiming to be the Messiah. Now Isaiah says, what is it going to be like? What's it going to be like when the Messiah comes? When God sends the Savior, the Anointed One, to establish his kingdom, to, 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 to bring his people back to him, what is it going to be like? It's going to be like a great wedding feast. In the Bible, God is a lover, and he's wooing his people. And he's, he, he, he seeks to betroth himself to his people. And he seeks to consummate this relationship in a marriage that is fruitful in holiness and righteousness and good works. And sometimes the people hearken to God and sometimes they turn away from God. One of the prophets of the Old Testament is a prophet, Hosea. God tells Hosea to go and marry a prostitute named Gomer. And the prophet, by what he is doing, is demonstrating to the people the character of their relationship with God. God is faithful, but they are unfaithful. What's it going to be like when God's wayward people are faithful to him? Well, it's going to be, the, it's going to be a royal wedding feast. It's going to be like, it's going to be like when a, well, the, the, we remember a royal wedding. We had one not too long ago, right? But it's going to be, you know what it's going to be like? In order, instead of a big tent, it's going to take a whole mountain to lay out the feast. And in that feast, not only is humanity restored to the right relationship with God, but even the creation begins to be healed. The wolf and the lamb will lie down together. The child will put his hand over the adder's hole. They'll not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. They will beat their swords into plowshares and study war no more. And when that day comes, when the wedding feast comes, God will even remove the shadow of death. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. God is going to take away that pall that hangs over us all on that great day when the Messiah comes, when the marriage between God and his people is consummated in this great marriage feast. So it's pretty clear when Jesus is telling this parable what he's talking about. And he's saying in some mysterious way, even though the Romans are still in charge, and what does this mean? That the kingdom is already upon us. Jesus is fulfilling all the promises of Isaiah. He's doing it in ways that completely and meticulously fulfill the prophecy, but also in ways that are totally unexpected. Even his disciples, right up until the time he's crucified, don't understand. Pilate asks him about it, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a kingdom that's already and not yet. It's like a pearl that's hidden in a field. It's like the leaven that's in a lump of dough and it's working, but you can't see it. Now he's telling this story about the king inviting people to the wedding feast and people ignore him, people refuse him, and people even kill his servants. If you're, a, if you're a, a, a Jewish listener at the time of Jesus, you're thinking, well, he's talking about the prophets. 
this prophet and this one and this one were killed uh, in, the temp- in the temple. Jeremiah, they put him in a pit and they, 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 they left him for dead. He only got out of it just at the last minute. And then there was Elijah and uh, Ahab was, uh, came against him with uh, um, all kinds of soldiers. And uh, um, yeah, so the, the, the rejection of the prophets by God's people, that's what he's talking about. Now, if you're one of the Pharisees or one of the Sadducees, part of the temple authorities or part of the renewal movement that's going on in the time of Jesus, which is what the Pharisees are. And here you are, and you're the people that should be in a place to recognize the Messiah when he comes, because you know all the prophets, you know all the scriptures. But you think he's a false prophet, you think he's a false Messiah, because he eats and drinks with sinners. because he seems to say that the kingdom is open to those that will come in humility, even if they're unrighteous. It's now, so the people that you would expect to receive Jesus don't receive him, and the people that were in real danger of despairing of God's mercy, who were in real danger of just sinking down into their sin. And we, 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 we dilute the power of the New Testament if we, if we misunderstand the depth of the wickedness of the people that, is come, that are coming to Jesus. The sinners are fl- flocking into him. Matthew, whose gospel we're reading today, the closest that we can get to the kind of person Matthew was, was that, was that when Jesus called him, he was a Nazi a collaborator. In our kind of framework, that would be the closest that we, 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 we could get. Uh, you remember that story about Zacchaeus, that little man who climbed up in a tree because he wanted to see Jesus? He was a crooked businessman, and he made his living by crushing the poor. Prostitutes came and sat at the feet of Jesus. It was a, it was a real, genuine scandal. When I was teaching seminary, I had a student one time, and he had a parish, a student parish, and there was a man who had been a, um, uh, he'd, been sent to j- he'd been sent to jail for um, being a sexual predator. And he'd served his sentence, and he'd been released, and he started to come to the service. And the people in the church said to him, you can't let that man come in here. Those are the kinds of people that were coming to Jesus. Now, if you're one of those people and you're listening to this story that Jesus is telling about how, um, um, you know, the the high and the mighty are rejecting the king's uh, messengers, uh, you're kind of saying to yourself, well, give it to him, Jesus, sock it to him, right? Let's let, you know, the, you're in, they've, they've had scorn for you, they've had contempt for you, um, they have let you know what they think of you, and, uh, and you're very satisfied with how the story is going so far. And then it gets quiet. If you're Matthew, if you're Zacchaeus, if you're one of the prostitutes, it gets quiet. Because now the king comes out to see the guests. And one of them doesn't have a wedding garment on. And so the king says, cast him out. Now, this is confusing to us. Didn't the king invite the guy in? Why is he all of a sudden picking on this guy? Well, 
Everybody else has a garment. Everybody else is attired appropriately. Every, everybody else is behaving as is meet and right for someone who is the beneficiary of an incredible act of royal generosity. Somehow this guy has missed out. Um, the garments are clearly provided for everyone. He chooses not to wear it. There's a, this would make more sense to us if we were, you know, we have to kind of, we're not in the Bible all the time. We, we should be, but we're not. And, and so we have to kind of bring some of these things to mind. Remember the story of Joseph? Remember Joseph? His coat of many colors, right? One of the, and, and his brothers were jealous of him because he was the father's favorite, and they plotted to kill him. But at the last minute, instead, they, they pulled him up out of the pit where they were going to leave him for dead and said, well, let's sell him as a slave, make a few bucks out of this. And he goes down into Egypt, and first he's in prison, and then by God's providence, he's raised out of prison to become next to Pharaoh, the highest man in Egypt. And there's a famine, and his brothers go to Egypt to look for bread, and they have to beg for mercy from their brother whom they plotted to kill. And Joseph forgives them with tears and wraps his arms around their necks. And on their way home, they look in their bag and they find what? Royal garments. Garments that befit the new relationship. So what is the Lord saying to us today? He's saying, despair not of the mercy of God, but neither presume upon his goodness. The kingdom of God is already and not yet, and the already for us is at work around us, had we but eyes to see it. But it, is, it becomes visible in the Holy Eucharist. Here we have a foretaste of this banquet which is to come on the mountain. Here is the forgiveness of sins. Here is reconciliation with God. Here is the royal blessing. Here is the wedding banquet of the king's son. And we need to take the invitation seriously. And we need to comport ourselves as is meet and right for people who are the recipients of an incredible act of royal largesse and generosity. And we need to clothe ourselves with faith and with repentance. If you have a few moments before the beginning of communion, open the prayer book to the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and just reflect so that when we come to the confession, we can, with hearty repentance and true faith, confess our sins to Almighty God and be clothed with humility and repentance and with such good works as God has prepared for us to walk in, that we might, with joy and gratitude, embrace this invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so, Good Shepherd, may I spend my days within thy house forever. In the name of God the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.